You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. I want to talk tonight about something that um, may be a little on the controversial side. And so if you're a little squeamish about that um, and don't like things that can touch on the political to be spoken about uh, in synagogue or from the pulpit, um, I'll invite you to step outside for a few minutes and I'll call you back in when it's all done. I don't want to uh, ruffle any feathers. And you know that anything I say, oh, good, we have one taker. So, uh, <laughs> uh, no, so uh, we have one taker. So uh, um, you know that anything that I say um, from here um, is not, even though it sounds like a monologue, it's not exclusively a monologue. And, and I hope that everybody here experiences it as an invitation to, uh, to further dialogue and conversation together. So if you're like me, You've been watching um, the events of the past uh, week and a half unfolding in our country uh, following the uh, killing of Michael Brown, an unarmed African-American teenager in Ferguson, Missouri. And you've been following the events surrounding Michael Brown's killing with a mix of pain and shock and maybe a little bit of confusion and bewilderment. It in some ways feels like there are people telling us who the clear heroes and the clear villains are in this story. Um, and, uh, and depending on who you ask, uh, the roles of hero and villain could potentially be reversed. Um, and depending on what news outlet you watch, the talking heads and the reports um, could be bringing a lot of uh, uh, sensation and a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of noise, but not a lot of clarity and a lot of context to the issue. And so I watch with uh, some confusion and some uh, muddled feelings over the course of the week about exactly how I'm supposed to feel about what's been going on uh, and what my thoughts as a Jew should be about uh, what's been going on in Ferguson. But it appears to me that there is something very critical and very important happening in Ferguson, Missouri and in the surrounding areas and around the country right now. Because the issue of Ferguson, in my view, is not about the murder of Michael Brown, or the killing, I should say, of Michael Brown, although that is the catalyst for it. Because in truth, we don't know, and in fact, we may never know because of the plethora of investigations um, that are going on about the killing, we may never know the actual truth about what happened. And because there are multiple investigations, it feels like whatever your preconceived notions are about what happened to Michael Brown will be justified in one way or another, depending on what investigation you look at and what investigation you read, what, whether you support the conclusion of the grand jury, whether you don't because, uh, because the parties involved might be biased, might be uh, um, uh, not able to give a partial decision, so you may trust it and you may not. We may never know what happened about Michael Brown, but what we do know is that the killing touched off 
a nerve of something that has been brewing under the surface for a long, long time. And so whether or not Michael Brown's murder was in any way racially motivated, it felt to an entire community to resonate with experiences throughout the recent history and way back going through the decades and the centuries of history in this country of racially motivated or subliminally racially motivated attacks and assaults and killings by white people against black people in this country. And we don't know if the officer involved was a racist. I imagine he probably wasn't. But we are part of a society that has a deep and deeply rooted history of oppression, subjugation, segregation, and violence of a powerful white majority against a less than powerful black and other ethnic minorities. And so when the officer in question in Ferguson shot Michael Brown six times, despite the fact, according to some eyewitnesses, he had his hands up and said, I'm unarmed, don't shoot. The officer may have been justified in doing so, we don't know, but nevertheless, you have to understand why it felt and why it feels to so many people to have resonances and reflections of the brutal history that minorities and African Americans specifically have in our country. And so as I was thinking about this Jewishly, I thought, and I was studying our Torah portion this week, I thought that there were really three different messages that I wanted to share about uh, this moment in our history and this moment of, uh, of tension uh, brought about by the killing of Michael Brown. So the first comes at the beginning of chapter 14 of the book of Deuteronomy in our Torah portion. It says, Banim atem ladonai elohechem lo titgodedu velo tasimu korcha bein enechem lamet. You are children of the Lord your God. So I want to first start with that. In saying you are children of the Lord your God, and I talked uh, about this with the kids at Camp Sababa this week, if we are children of the Lord our God and there is one God, it means that we are all children of the Lord our God, which means that we are all of us, everyone in this room and everybody outside of this room, brothers and sisters. And it's important that we keep that in mind as we construct and think about our society going forward because we need to envision and realize the ways in which there are people in our society and in our communities that are not given the full dignity and equality that we would imagine to be deserving of brothers and sisters. But there's more. It says, you shall not gash yourselves or shave the front of your heads because of the dead. And if you look at the commentary in the Eitz Chaim Chumash, it says, as children of God, 
Each of us has infinite value, even in the absence of the loved one who has died. True, God is found in relationships, as Buber thought, and one cannot be a fully realized human being alone. Nonetheless, we diminish the worth of the individual, bearer of the image of a single God, when we become so attached to someone else that we would harm or destroy ourselves when that person is taken from us. So the first thing I want to say, and it may be somewhat idiosyncratic to the rest of the message, or the second thing I guess that I want to say, that it may be a little bit idiosyncratic to the rest of the message, is that there is a, an understandable, I think, human condition that the Torah is responding to. To harm ourselves and harm others because of our grief at someone's death. Especially when the death is unjustified. Especially when someone is taken away from us when they didn't deserve to be taken away from us. And so there is, even in the justified passions and anger and peaceful protests among the people in Ferguson and elsewhere in the country, there are, of course, we know, people who are overstepping the boundaries of protest. And not furthering the cause that I think that they hope to further. And that, I think, is one message that the Torah offers us, is don't gash yourselves because of the dead. Somebody died, let's mourn, let's move into action to change our society and make sure deaths like that don't happen again. But there's a limit to what we can and should do as a result of our grief. But there's more in our Torah portion. Our Torah portion is rich this week. And it offers in the middle of it, uh, just a, a few verses later, a vision of a society in which there's something called Shemitah. Shemitah is the laying fallow of the land every seven years. But there's more to it than just an agricultural sabbatical. What happens in Shemitah is that debts are completely absolved. If I owed you money and the seventh year came around, you would be required to absolve me of that debt and I would be allowed never to pay it back. And in fact, there were some commentators that said I would even be forbidden from paying it back. And again, the Eitz Chaim commentary offers something I think profound. If you look at the commentary in the first verse of chapter 15, which talks about the Shemitah, the Eitz Chaim commentary says most of this chapter is concerned with ensuring that there is not, that there not emerge in Israel a permanent underclass, persons unable to lift themselves out of poverty. Such a condition would be unfair to human beings fashioned in God's image and dangerous to society as a breeding ground for lawlessness and irresponsibility. The first step in the direction of preventing this is the remission of debts in the seventh year. The principle that the Torah is trying to get across is that we should strive to be a society in which there aren't entrenched classes and aren't entrenched racial and economic divisions. There shouldn't be a permanent underclass. And yet we know if we look critically at our society, though many of us in this room are uncomfortable to admit it, but the data is pretty clear and speaks for itself. There's a great article that came out a few weeks ago in The Atlantic called The Case for Reparations. Now, I'm not going to make the case for reparations, but there's an element of the argument that I think is unimpeachable. Here's what Tinahosi Coates says. 
Having been enslaved for 250 years, black people were not left to their own devices. They were terrorized. In the Deep South, a second slavery ruled. In the North, legislatures, mayors, civic associations, banks, and citizens all colluded to pin black people into ghettos where they were overcrowded, overcharged, and undereducated. Businesses discriminated against them, awarding the worst jobs and the worst wages. Police brutalized them in the streets. And the notion that black lives, black bodies, and black wealth were rightful targets remained deeply rooted in the broader society. Now we have stepped half-stepped away from our long centuries of despoilment, promising never again. But still we are haunted. It is as though we have run up a credit card bill, and having pledged to charge no more, remain befuddled that the balance does not disappear. The effects of that balance, interest accruing daily, are all around us. The lives of black Americans are better than they were half a century ago. The humiliation of whites only signs are gone. Rates of black poverty have decreased. Black teen pregnancy rates are at record lows, and the gap between black and white teen pregnancy rates has shrunk significantly, but such progress rests on shaky foundations, and fault lines are everywhere. The income gap between black and white households is roughly the same today as it was in 1970. Patrick Sharkey, a sociologist at New York University, studied children born from 1955 through 1970 and found that 4% of whites and 62% of blacks across America had been raised in poor neighborhoods. A generation later, the same study showed virtually nothing had changed. And whereas whites born into affluent neighborhoods tended to remain in affluent neighborhoods, blacks tended to fall out of them. Whether we like to admit it or not, and I, I, I get that, that talking about it is uncomfortable, but we do live in a society in which there are very clear haves and have-nots. We live in a society with a radical separation between the rich and the poor. And much of that economic gap is divided along racial fault lines. And it becomes increasingly hard for somebody to pull themselves up by their bootstraps out of an entrenched system and cycle of poverty and intrinsic segregation. Michelle Alexander points this out in her book, The New Jim Crow, that talks about how the criminal justice system in our country, whether by design or whether by effect, has disenfranchised large segments of the male African-American population in this country and continues to do so unless we do something to reform it. But these are parts of our society that we actually have the capacity to change. That's what the Torah is telling us. That it's not inevitable that there's a permanent underclass. That we can do things, we can construct our society in a way to enable people who are at the bottom to pull themselves up. Martin Luther King said, I reject the, boot, the by the bootstraps ideology because there are some people who have no boots. So that's what we need to do. We can allow people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but we need to make sure first that they have boots. And the final thing I think that our Torah portion tells us this week is in describing this system of remission of debts. It talks about the responsibility that those who have, have to give loans to those who don't, even though they may not be repaid. 
And it uses the following language, which I think is incredible. It says, if, however, there's a needy person among you, one of your kinsmen in any of your settlements in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, and do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kinsmen. Rather, you must open your hand and lend him sufficient for whatever he needs. Beware lest you harbor the base thought. The seventh year, the year of remission is approaching so that you are mean to your needy kinsmen and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you and you will incur guilt. It is, according to our parsha this week, a transgression of a high order to hear people crying out that they are victims of oppression and segregation and subjugation and entrenched attitudes that hold them back who are taking to the streets and literally crying out and holding their hands up and saying, when will this change? And how will those who are in power help us? And our Torah portion says, you can ignore them. You can choose not to give to them. You can choose not to help them with their problem. But if they cry out and you don't listen to them, God will. And it will be your transgression that you didn't listen to them and you didn't help them. As I've said from this pulpit now numerous times since I've been here, and I, I, I apologize that it's a recurring theme, but it's been a hard summer, that the Torah portion offers us this stark choice between being on God's side or Pharaoh's side. Pharaoh is characterized by the hardened heart. Pharaoh doesn't listen to the cries of the slaves when they call out to him. God, on the other hand, is characterized by listening to the cries of the oppressed Israelite slaves and swooping down and helping to liberate them. And we, this Shabbat, are given a choice. We may not agree with every demand and every argument that is made on the streets of Ferguson and elsewhere. We may not agree that the cause of Michael Brown's death was racially motivated. But I hope that we can see that at least some of the pain that's being expressed on the streets is real and entrenched, and we have the capacity in this room to do something about it. And our Torah portion calls out to us, open your ears and open your hearts to the people who are calling out for your help, because if you don't listen, God is. Shabbat Shalom.